Hi, I'm Paul Burns. And I'm Ken Logan. You're listening to Neuropsychotheology. Join us in this conversation about our relationship with God through the lenses of neuroscience and psychology. Can science help us to have a better relationship with God? We We think think so. so. Welcome to uh, the first episode of a brand new podcast called Neuropsychotheology. My name is Paul Burns, and my conversation buddy is Ken Logan. And uh, let me tell you a little bit about what we're doing and who we are and and why we're doing this. So uh, we're we're both very interested in the concept of uh, a multidisciplinary approach to theology. So uh, we both have interest in neuroscience and psychology, and we're both ordained ministers as well. Uh, Ken is a neuropsychology professor, and I... Uh, am have been a pastor and uh, up until recently and now I am the founder and executive director of a company called Soul Metrics which uh, is a spiritual health education and assessment company and so and I'm going to let Ken tell you in a little bit how um, more about himself as well but uh, <clears throat> I, I want to start with a quote from a neuroscientist named Andrew Newberg, who wrote a book called Neurotheology. And, and in talking about the importance of what he was doing and he is doing and is similar to what we're doing in that it, this quote says it, it would also be hoped that any of these approaches would not diminish, defame, debunk, or decry one perspective for another. In other words, science doesn't have to prove religion false, and religion doesn't have to prove science false, but rather the new synthesis would ultimately help human beings to relate better to the world around them and to engage both in their biological and spiritual dimensions. And that's, that's what we're, we're, we're hoping for, a world that is both more uh, scientifically informed but also more spiritually informed. We come from a Christian perspective, uh, and we realize that that limits part of our conversation. Uh, but we're also open to, to looking at, at, at truth wherever we find it. Um, so I met uh, Ken uh, four years, almost four years ago, through an email uh, that I was working on my dissertation. I needed an advisor, and Ken was recommended to me for what I was doing. And we met in person for the first time, September 2016. I remember sitting down in his office and explaining what what I was trying to do. And what I was trying to do was add a spiritual dimension to emotional intelligence. And uh, one of the things that I was missing was a way of measuring, uh, measuring spiritual intelligence. If, if we had a, a curriculum that helped to increase spiritual intelligence, how would we measure that? And Ken said, why don't you make that your dissertation? How to measure spiritual intelligence, which I refer now more to as spiritual health. And uh, and Ken uh, probably feels a little guilt that he pushed me into that, but I was unfamiliar ter- territory to me, but I've learned a lot about psychometrics and things. I didn't even know that was a word before we went into this. But anyway, Ken, tell us a little bit more about uh, uh, about yourself and about uh, our relationship and why we're doing this. 
Yeah, Paul, I, I can't believe it's been four years. That's incredible. Um, time is flying. Um, yeah, I still remember that conversation we had in my office that day. And um, I got really excited that a, a seminarian was interested in looking into psychometrics. So um, I think that interest that I have to blend those two areas together, among other kinds of areas and clinical work, um, speaks to my encouragement to you. I'm just glad you uh, you kind of took the hook and went with it. Um, <laughs> so my hat's off to you. The instrument you've created is phenomenal, and it's been a blessing and a, a total joy to be a part of the development of that uh, with you and, and even into the future here, and uh, that's just really cool. Um, yeah, I'm a, I'm a clinical psychologist. Um, I've been a Christian since 1984 and kind of came into ministry initially and started working with people and realizing that I didn't feel like I was equipped to be able to help them to the level that they needed to be helped and um, uh, felt like I needed to expand my understanding to be able to um, minister to folks the way that I felt God calling me to. And that's what led me to clinical training, first as a marriage and family therapist, and then as a psychologist. So um, I work at George Fox University now, and I teach in their doctoral program and spend a lot of time integrating theology and psychology and um, helping people utilize their faith as a way to help them, you know, recover from things they've been through to um, maybe cope more effectively with stuff they're going through and also to help people grow uh, in ways that they want to grow and, and mature. So this topic that you're introducing here today, it's, it's a pleasure to be in this podcast with you, Paula. Anything that blends neurology with psychology and theology is perfect for me. So I'm looking forward to our conversation. Now, um, we're not saying that what is in the Bible is not enough to be saved in the right. traditional sense of being saved. but. It, what what I've noticed in my research or what I found is in reading other people's research is that there seems to be a disconnect between this salvation moment that many have experienced and becoming more like the person who saved us, Jesus Christ. So uh, our development, our spiritual development is what really this conversation is about. And uh, a, a research done by Barner Research showed that Uh, Only about 10% of professed Christians in the United States move beyond the simply the idea of I've confessed my sins and I'm forgiven, therefore I'm saved. In other words, only about 10% of Christians in his study uh, have undergone any kind of transformation of becoming more like Christ. Or you might just sum it up by saying become more loving. Um, And so being more loving is is ultimately what this is about and not just loving in a in a theoretical sense uh, i love everybody but actually loving is a concrete activity that requires a whole lot of stuff uh to to get and we're working in the, we're working through our stuff is maybe a better way to say it in order for the love of god to get through us into other people and we've got we've got ourselves to deal with uh, and and the the way that our self came into being and were shaped by the environments that we lived in and all these things are at stake. And so uh, we believe that uh, 
the recent under the recent developments of neuroscience giving us a better idea of what parts of the brain are functioning under work conditions and even maybe how the part the brain itself is being influenced by by god or at least our image of god and and that being significant to actually how we behave and treat other people uh and so and also psychology which neuroscience is helping to confirm a great deal or clarify a great deal of the theory that's been developed over the decades and beyond. Um, and it's amazing to me, Ken, that the Bible and, and other religious texts too, but the Bible intuitively, it seemed like, understood the human soul and mind uh, in ways that now neuroscience is confirming. Yeah, there's a ton of research that's out now that as things are coming to the light more and more and more, it's confirming what we've known all along. One of the things that it's, you bring up an interesting point there. And one of the things that I think it's important to say is that studying neurology and psych psychology and maybe any other science <clears throat> that's never meant to replace theological understandings of things. The only thing it adds to it. Um, and I know we'll talk about this in later episodes in terms of, you know, how God reveals himself to us. You know, special revelation, as you know, comes, we're talking about scriptural revelation, perhaps, of how God's making himself known through the word of God. But also, he makes himself known through his creation. And although creation's fallen, there's this fingerprint of him. And so when we study his creation, we learn things about him. It's, I always liken it to a, uh, a picture that my sons used to make when they were kids and they would bring me the picture and I would look at it, make a big deal out of it and stuff. And there were always little pieces to that picture that gave me information about their personality and about how they, how they understand things and how they um, comprehend and process information. There's something about studying, you know, God's creation that helps us understand him a little bit more. One of the things that I think the Bible does really well, and, and I, I think it's meant to do this is to kind of give us general concepts about things. Um, for example, if you think of the topic of, um, you know, rearing children, you know, scripture gives us information about how to raise kids, but it doesn't tell us how to raise a, a child who has autism or a child who has down syndrome. It gives us general principles, but it doesn't give us specific things that those kiddos need. And so, when we go in and we study human behavior, we're not replacing God. We're trying to expand on what he's saying. And so the science always tends to come back and validate those general principles that we get through scripture. And that's a miraculous thing because we've had that for a long, long time. And um, what we get out of science and studying science, and we'll reveal that I think in this podcast, is we start getting into the details a lot more that end up validating those general principles that we see in scripture. Well, today we're going to spoke, focus specifically on who God is and, and more particularly in a view of God uh, in a Christian sense, which is trinit a Trinitarian view of God. God is Trinity, which is such a mysterious and, and difficult concept in many ways. And oftentimes it seems to me descriptions of the Trinity lead to higher math type discussions about about how in the world God could be uh, three in one as as a as a person and so uh, but but 
you know, we won't get into all the different ways you could explain Trinity or even how it all came about, but it does matter to us because understanding God is a trin- as Trinity and eternally as, as Trinity, which means that the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit, the three persons of the Trinity, are all eternal eternal that they are all uncreated it's not like the father came first and then uh bore the son and bore the holy spirit it's that they all existed in this three-in-one format and why why that's important to our conversation is because it means that god is fundamentally relational which to say even to say that god is loving means that there needs to be something of an other to love one cannot be loving unto oneself, although one should love oneself. So one can love oneself. We get that from the image of God. And so God is fundamentally a community uh, within God's self. And uh, that can be a little bit, it, we, we do admit this is a mystery. We can't, we're not going to be able to explain this in a, in a way that totally satisfies all our curiosities about God. But understanding God as a trinity instead of just a a singular, uh, you know, monadic uh, figure that that exists more like a king on a throne uh, that simply rules, you know, reigns down commands upon us uh, to follow, but that he's fundamentally trying that even all his commands are about relationship and creating relationship with God and with one another. Um, what do you, what do you, what are some of your thoughts initially, Ken, when you think about Trinity? Yeah, I think it's, um, I think to all the discussions I've had with people, even in, on the ministry side of things, you know, for quite a while, I, it's a mystery. And so people get into the theology of it, but the practicality of it, I think is what you're getting at Paul and the, the notion that God is revealing himself, um, you know, as a relational being, and that that's the point of all of this that we're going to be making, I think, in this podcast. And I, I think it's the point in all Christianity is that God desires relationship. He is a perfect relational being. And so the notion of Trinity, I think, facilitates uh, the ability to understand that. Um, it's kind of like, um, uh, you know, the notion that Trinity is kind of like a you know, the psychology of God, um, excuse me, of God shows up in the fact that he is describing himself as one, one God in three different persons. And that these, you know, this, this existed long before we were ever here and, and, and forever all the way back. And so <clears throat> this idea that, um, you know, he's trying to communicate something to us through his identity and, and that his identity is going to be suggesting to us that we need to work these things out and kind of move beyond this notion of, um, you know, what I call um, um, kind of a modern-day heresy is that we are so overly behaviorally focused in our walk with God, and that is fundamentally an insecure stance, an insecure relational stance with him being primarily focused on behavior in order for him to have relationship with us. You know, the message of Jesus turned that upside down. And, um, you know, I think the, the Godhead I, actually encourages us to embrace that. And I think that's what we're going to flesh out here in just a second when we talk about this. 
Well, so uh, I was doing some more research, ever more research, Ken. Uh, it never ends, and that's that's a beautiful thing. Uh, perhaps even in the afterlife, perhaps we'll be researching. Actually, we'll have the truth before us, but we'll take some doing to understand it all. Um, but so uh, part of the research that would be done uh, from a neurological basis was showing how the God image, your image of God, that this model that you have in your head that was informed by all kinds of different sources, um, um, that that God image impacts both our brain function and the way we relate to other people. And part of the study was trying to show the impact that God had on empathy which is a major part of how we relate to each other. Uh, Brene Brown defined empathy as the basic connection between humans. Uh, and I would say between God, if, if, if God is, if the, if your God image is a God that is loving and forgiving, and let's just say empathetic, an empathetic view of God, a God that is seeking relationship with us and loving relationship, not controlling relationship, but loving, mutual relationship, then we are more likely to be to behave empathetically. Our brain will be able, empathy comes out of brain structure and brain function and brain integration. And so, um, and so our image of God, now if we view God uh, as judgmental, if we view God as shaming, if we view God as more moralistic and legalistic uh, and more distant from us rather than close and personal and loving, uh, then it, it shuts down the parts of our brain that allow us to be empathetic. It makes us more judgmental towards other people. We take on the same qualities of the God that we have imaged. Um, the question, and the question we're trying to get to is not, is well how we view god is almost as important as who god is uh, but we we're what we're hoping to get to of course as everyone perhaps is is who god really is um, but um, but it does matter who we believe god to be even if we're wrong um, even atheists uh, are influenced by god images uh, it does impact their level of empathy to a different degree as well. So we all have some form of God image, positive or negative. Yeah, I think the uh, that old notion that people who who love well have been loved well, or they've experienced love well themselves. And that I think gets at the heart of what you're talking about, that these are implicit notions. They're not ideas. They're not theologies. They're things that um, we really don't even comprehend that we have. We We may say explicitly that God is loving, but yet implicitly when we're in a time of stress or a time of uh, a threat or a, a time when we haven't been perfect or we've sinned in some ways, all of a sudden these different images or what we call an attachment theory, these internal working models of God come to the surface. Um, and that these are kind of laid down based upon our own relational experiences and the way God's been kind of described to us by people who have shared uh, God with us. And so 
you know, these notions of feeling safe with him so that we can address issues and that we can receive support from him. I think that's what we're getting at. This notion of Trinity actually encourages us to consider, or maybe I should say reconsider some of these more implicit notions of God so that we feel safer with him and that we feel that we can be more intimate and more closely tied to him. Um, and to get out of that sort of moralistic, you know, heretical kind of motivation that our focus is to be good so that God will like us. Um, that's, that's bad theology. I mean, really bad theology. Uh, if that, if that was the case, we wouldn't have needed Jesus, right? So, um, how Jesus's reality, what, how does that change things? And I think that's what Trinity is kind of getting at. The, the interpersonal nature of God means that I think relationality is at the heart of Christianity. And that's, we want that to go, we want people to get that implicitly so that when those stresses come up and those hard times come up and when they're not perfect, when that stuff comes up, they can turn to him rather than be afraid of him or to avoid him or to run from him or that kind of stuff. Yeah. So going back into, you know, our main source for understanding God, the Bible, and you go into Genesis and Genesis, when God was creating in the beginning, um, and we have a corresponding passage in the Gospel of John that says in the beginning was the Word. And the Word is who we identify as Jesus. The Word was with God and the Word was God. So Jesus was there in the beginning. And then in Genesis, it says that the breath, the wind, the wind, a wind or a wind of God or breath or, or spirit, it's ruach, it's the same word. The spirit, a spirit hovered above uh, the unformed uh, the unformed deeps of creation. And if you look more deeply into the word hovered, it, it's more like a, a mother eagle hovering above uh, her eaglet. So it's a, it's a chair, the word cherished or brooding, brooded over creation. So this, this love of creation in, in the God, uh, in God of over creation expressed in spirit, expressed in word as God spoke creation into existence through word who we associate with Christ and, um, and through, uh, and the father, um, the sire, so to speak of creation, uh, but also in a very feminine way, gave birth to creation, uh, uh, from, from God's being. And so I think about how God basically took what was on the inside of God's self and he overflowed it in, and he spoke it into existence. He spoke his inside into an external existence called creation. And then when they got to the part about human beings, it said, and this is how it, it's phrased in the, in the pronouns that are used, let us create humankind in our image, male and female. And so we've got... We've got an us already before there is uh, before there is us. <laughs> there was an us, the the great us that we call God, and so uh, and so we're created in that image. Not just man alone, not just woman alone, but man and woman together uh, reflect the fullness of God. And I would go so far as to say, as as humanity proliferated and diversified, that only only in the the fullest expression of human humanity, what, 
you know, every ethnicity, culture, language, group, all of it. Only, only with that together will you see a, a full reflection of God's creation. Uh, so it, it's, it's never, it's so important right now that we not divide ourselves the way, because when we divide ourselves like we have been culturally or racially or economically, uh, we are dividing God um, in a sense, or at least our understanding of God uh, as we are reflected to some degree, even in our fallenness, which is what we'll talk about in another lecture or a conversation uh, lecture. But um, anyway, so to Trinity, so I, I was thinking about this. Okay, so um, so here's an interesting way to think about God. An atom, which is the smallest part of creation. I mean, you can you can point to some teeny tiny parts, but this is basically the building block of creation of how God made the universe, including all of us. Uh, has three parts, <laughs> electrons, protons, and neutrons, and they are all moving around in there. You've got the, uh, the nucleus, which is the, the, the collection, the, the union of uh, neutrons and protons. Maybe you could think of that as the father and the son, and the electrons are spinning around it like an orbit. Uh, and it's, there's a constant motion going on inside the basic building block of creation, and we're all made out of that. Uh, and, and there's this old uh, con concept in one of the in the early church fathers, Greek fathers, the word perichoresis to understand God as Trinity. And perichoresis is a Greek word that means going around or, or dancing around a circle, or, or it could also be translated as envelopment. And so understanding God like you know a, a dance a, a circle dance where the the three are holding hands and dancing in a circle uh, in a way like like an atom the basic part of creation uh, is a beautiful image to think that that has always existed uh, eternally always this this loving dance like movement of existence that's that's awesome i I like that because it expands on, you know, what creation is like. There's this dynamic to it that's it's um, just blows me away. I think the scripture you quoted, um, you know, Genesis opens with this sort of magnificent vision of creation, and um, it's interesting too. I, you know, if you think about it in Revelation, it, you know, the book the, the scriptures close out too, where it says. Um, you know, the same God who created again makes all things new. It's like there's this beginning and this ending, which is all about him um, doing this work, a relational, you know, the, the Trinity, the relational aspect there, creating this that we're all in right now, and then actually renewing it at the end. So it's not, it doesn't end. It actually begins with something else. And, um, to me, it speaks to God's, you know, intense relationality. You know, God relates to us. Scripture, I think, speaks of God in ways that are very personal. You know, He He speaks to us. He He reasons. He loves. Um, the The modeling of Jesus in terms of who God is is just powerful in terms of His love for people and His deep, profound empathy, like you were talking about earlier, and His deep, profound compassion. 
and even in confrontation and and uh, being angry, those were never things that were about condemning or smashing or that was always about bringing somebody to the end of themselves so that they could have a transformational experience so they could be redeemed. It, it was purposeful. Um, that That's, I think, really a powerful message for those of us who've had relational experiences in the past where they it hasn't really been relationally. It's been, you know, people being oppressive or people being damaging or people being abusive. You know, God relates to his creation or to us personally. He speaks to us. He wills for us. He reasons with us and he loves us because that's who he is, not because of what we do. And it changes, I think, um, a lot of things when we get into that. And I think that's what we're getting at here with the the talk on the Trinity, Paul, is the, um, it might be good too, and I'll throw this back your way because I know we, we wanted to talk about this a little bit. People kind of get the Trinity wrong in some ways and they, it kind of tweaks and messes up that whole relationality of God. And um, maybe we could talk about that a little bit. Yeah, so... Um in classical theology, it's important to understand the heresies because heresies are the things that aren't considered to be orthodox. Uh, although there's there's sometimes really good reasons for these ideas, and, and and it's how we sort out. It's how we're sorting out our theology. We need to know what the extremes are. And so, with, with Trinity, you have two two over corrections or over kind of too far to the right, too far to the left, you know, um, for traditional theology. And so one is called modalism and that it over emphasizes the, the function of the three parts of the Trinity that, that God it emphasizes the unity of God, um, more than the threeness. And so, uh, the unity of God is, is a, extremely important concept and worth emphasizing strongly uh, but it collapses the relational apps uh, the relational aspect of God and Father Son Holy Spirit which is clearly clearly seen in scripture is there being a distinctness between the Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit and their interactions with each other uh, they, they can't be collapsed you know into just function so it would be basically say that God was functioning in human flesh as Jesus Christ. God was functioning in the spirit in the earth as the Holy Spirit. And God functioned as the father in creation and then its relationship to creation. Uh, so, um, and that's, that's great, except that it takes away the distinctiveness of the father and the son and the Holy Spirit and, and the relationshipness of it. Uh, it's easier to understand God in that way, uh, I think. But uh, but the problem is, is that it collapses relationship. And that's fundamentally important to who God is. Um, the other side is tritheism. And this is, this is a big problem, particularly in our relationship with our Muslim uh, friends and our Jewish friends, which is they accuse us essentially of having three gods uh, that we're that we don't have one God, that God is not one in the Christian world. They say, you you talk about three gods. Tritheism overemphasizes the distinctiveness of the three persons of the Trinity, uh, which which elevates that very important thing, which is that there is there are three persons. They're of the same substance, 
like an atom there. I mean, there is an atom is made up of the three parts and and they have function. Uh, But, um, but if we get too far, then there's a disunity that happens. Uh, You get relationship, but actually you get a breaking in a sense of relationship, a disharmony potential for the father and the son and the Holy spirit. But it does, it does point to some important things such as, did Jesus know everything that the Father knew in his earthly life? Uh, why then did he have doubts on the night before the crucifixion? Why, why did he have to? Why did he have such anxiety that blood that he sweat blood? I mean, why would God, the God, uh, you know, the all-knowing God, even have anxiety? Um, but but Jesus is expressed individually. Um, and though is one with God is distinct as well. So finding the balance between the function and the identity is, is very important. It's both. It's both that God functions uh, differently and for different purpose in the Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit. And uh, God is one and God does not act inconsistently within oneself uh, as well. Good. Tell, talk a little bit more, you know, you know, thinking about this identity versus function. Uh, talk a little bit more about attachment theory and, and how it would impact our identity and our function in relationship to ourself, to God and to others. Well, that's a great question, Paul. I think what, what came to my mind when you were talking, when you were sharing that was I kept thinking about, okay, practically, how do those different extremes show up in um, impacting our view of God or our, our God concept? And um, if you just take the person of Jesus, for example, um, you know, if he's if he's all human and he's not divine, there's no divinity to him, then I can relate to him as a human being, but I don't have a whole lot of hope in terms of um, – me being any different than him or him being any different than me. And so that can create a high level of insecurity, which leads people to begin to do things to try to gain their security themselves uh, rather than be dependent on his, on Christ's words. I think about some of the things that he said, and um, one of the most profound things he said to me in all of the New Testament, or he didn't say to me, well, he did, but he said it to other people, but I heard it. <laughs> um, you know, he's hanging on the cross and he's about to die and, and he's going through all of this suffering and he's experiencing God turn his back on him. And there's this deep, profound, I can only imagine the excruciating pain that he endured with that, physical and spiritual. Um, but when he's about to give up, you know, uh, his life, he, he says the words, you know, it is finished. And if I take that as a human, you know, person saying that, that can me to me that that might say something like, you know, okay, he's he's dying and he's not going to suffer anymore. But when you see him as divine saying that, it has a profound impact. The divinity of Jesus is so important. You and I are not Jesus. And that's really important because when he said that, He's doing something that I couldn't do. He's doing something that you couldn't do, that anybody couldn't do. Uh, we, we just, we can't, when he says it's finished, he's talking about sin separating us from God. He's the ultimate sacrifice and he's putting all of that uh, 
he's changing the game. It's totally a different thing now. And that sacrifice, that sacrificial thing is what he's uh, alluding to. I think when he says those words, so his divinity is really important that we embrace that. Um, likewise, though, we ha- we can't forget his humanity. When he's in the garden and he's sweating drops of blood, like you had mentioned, I mean, that's a real physiological experience that people go through when they're highly, highly distressed. So this is all, he's all, his, this all divinity and all, all humanity all at the same time. I think we, it's hard to comprehend that. Uh, to put that all together, which is why people probably split off into tritheism and modalism. But the impact on our attachment is huge because we need a we need a safe, perfect, I, you know, idealized God image in order to grow the way that we can could grow. Um, it's not about us being God; it's about us being conformed to His image. In other words, God has to be holy. He has to be divine. Jesus has to have be divine in order for these transformations to take place for us to have a secure attachment um, to him. Likewise, he needs to be all fully human as well. And so um, that he can relate to me, that he can walk with me through it, that he's been through similar things. That he, you know, It's like if you, t- if you ever talk to somebody who's trying to support you going through something difficult, if they haven't been through it themselves, it's a very different experience than when you're talking to somebody who has been through it. And they've they've walked it out. You have a sense of hope that you don't have with someone who can't really comprehend. So I think the attachment implications are big. And one of the things that you see with people who are suffering is one of those two images changes. I think a lot of the the tweaking that goes on with Trinity and the relationality of God, and especially the image of Jesus, it gets impacted by our suffering we begin to go into one extreme or the other as we, as we are contending with these issues that we're struggling with. Um, so I, I don't know if that answers your question fully, but that kind of is what came to mind when you were talking. Well, um, one of the really important parts of, of my research and in and, and my ministry as well as, is, is understanding, uh, understanding attachment and, and, and does a person have a secure attachment to God? And and that actually begins not with God, but with really our first relationship, which informs greatly our our, our relationship with God. And that's uh, usually with our mom, our primary caregiver at birth, and uh, and how our moms relate to us in our helpless state uh, shapes. Uh, our emotional framework, our our ability to empathy comes, uh, empathize comes from our mom's empathy and father's empathy of us, and so it's shaped within us. We're not; it's not instinctual as much as it is uh, developed. And so, uh, so and and it and it has everything to do with whether or not we can trust other human beings or God. If if our primary view of of motherhood uh, is developed something that makes us feel unworthy of love because we did not experience consistent love from a mother or or a caregiver, uh, then it will be hard for us to see a God that can view us as worthy. We'll feel a lot of shame before God. Or on the other side, it, it causes us to believe, question whether other people or God are capable of giving love. 
or capable of loving us. And, and you can see how a lack of sense of worthiness of love and a lack of trust that other people can love us can make it impossible to have a relationship with anybody, no less an invisible being conceptualized as God. Um, and I, I think I think that's where Jesus comes in. And that's, that's the, important, the important point that you were making is that Jesus is a connecting point for attachment with God. In God, uh, we see and we see empathy. In God, we see relationship through Jesus, um, and uh, and it's important for us to be able. To, if God is unrelatable to us, then we cannot have much of an attachment to God. Uh, you know, God, God is God has substance to Him in 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 the incarnation. Uh, in in God entering flesh in Jesus, yeah, that's really good. The the um, the problems on our side. Um, if I mean, if I have issue with God, I really have an issue myself. It's not if if I have issue if I have an issue with God, it's probably having to do with the way God's been described to me or how I'm not able to relate to Him. On the God side of it, it's it's fine. It's on my side of it, which is where the struggle's at. And I think what you're getting at in terms of the attachment style stuff, and, and I'd love to spend an episode just talking about attachment, Paul, because the there's a lot to this, but it's very practical that if we have a you know, if we have a connection to God that is secure, that experience is really what we're all looking for. And that's the the potential's there because on God's side it's in place. It's on our side where we need to f- deal with our anxiety and our avoidance and our fear and to adjust some of these perceptions so that we can engage God. And that's the cool thing about um, how, you know, just religiosity in general and, and faith practices are a huge me- uh, moderator for dealing with times of stress. And in a culture where God's being seen as bad or seeing uh, being debased or not being valued— or being ridiculed or argued against or whatever, it begins to limit people's ability to stand on their faith to help them work through things that they need to work through. So a secure connection with God many times is a first step towards having a secure connection with other human beings. Sometimes having a secure connection with a human being allows you to learn how to have a secure connection with God. And the two interface each other because these are relational experiences. And back to what we said earlier, God is fundamentally relational. That's the nature of what Trinity is about. So um, how to have a secure attachment with God is really what I think the Trinity is speaking to. The potential of connecting with God is there on his side. We need to work on our side. One of the ways I think of the Trinity is as a revolving door. The important thing is that there's a way in to God's life and and Jesus makes that possible. Some people relate more to Jesus. Some people relate more to the Holy Spirit. Some people relate more to the Father. But they're all three a way in to God. Um, and, and so uh, that's the important thing is that there's a, there's a way to connect and to commune with God and to have a relationship with God. And, and, and all, all we're trying to do in this conversation is uh, to bring to light how this relationship can impact uh, us in reality. And, and in reality, we're neurobiological beings. 
and we we're, we're psychological beings. And if, if it, if it doesn't happen to us psychologically, it didn't happen. Uh, and so these, this area of study of the mind and study of the soul are so helpful to me and, and, and I believe can be helpful to the church and to anybody who's out there spiritually seeking, uh, to find a way into God. Um, in fact, maybe to believe that God has already found a way into you, uh, in, into the very structure of your your being, into even your the depth of your atoms, that at least God has a seat there for God's self in you, waiting, uh, waiting for the fulfillment that's found in a relationship with God. If God's God's desiring to connect with us deeply and the purpose for that and one of the benefits of it is is that it changes the way our brain ne- is networked together and the practical part of it is it re it rewires us potentially and if we can move into that secure direction so people who are very down on themselves or if they view themselves very highly more than they should if they're and you know they're independent and self-reliant or they're they're afraid of losing relationships all the time or they're they're aggressive or clingy or they they put up walls and they reject people you know all these sorts of relational hiding strategies this is the stuff that a secure connection with god changes it literally changes the way we relate to ourselves and to other people in our world by engaging this secure attachment with god where you have a positive view of yourself and other people you're more independent you're more comfortable with emotional intimacy. You're more comfortable with closeness. You're more secure and trusting. Or I, mean, I can go on and on and on here. But that's that's the nature of a secure attachment. And that changes your brain. Relating to people this way changes your brain. And um, that's probably what I would uh, like to encourage people to at least consider. You know, God relates to us personally. He speaks to us. He reasons with us. He loves us. And I think, I think people struggle with that because it feels like it lessens his divinity to think about him being so personal or his holiness. It doesn't. It actually elevates us. It makes us even more like him to be thinking about it that way. God is very personal as a way to remind us that we are personal too, just like he is. We just long for a relationship like he does because we're made in his image and by his design. And so... Um, connecting to him is a part of us developing the skill set that we've been created to have. Well, we could go on like this forever. Trust, uh, trust me. We love to talk about this, and I hope that you've enjoyed our conversation. The first of, we hope, uh, several conversations uh, integrating uh, neuroscience, psychology, and theology. Neuropsychotheology. So thanks for joining in and listening to us. We, we hope that you will tune in again in our next conversations. And we hope that you'll have these conversations with the people that you love as well. So God bless you and uh, we love you. Bye-bye. Thank you for listening to Neuropsychotheology brought to you by Soul Metrics, transforming spiritual health. Take your first step towards greater spiritual health by going to www.soul-metrics.com and take the groundbreaking spiritual health assessment, the GPS Spiritual Inventory.